Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. what points can you allow yourself to feel safe? Not yet. Relieved, maybe, but not safe. You escaped the man, and you weren't certain that you would. Now, surrounding you, is the night, and the nothing. Nothing except the snow, the blowing snow. It's not welcoming snow, it's harsh pelts your face relentlessly, and it's hard to keep moving forward with your eyes open. There is not a choice, though. One step in front of the other, into the night, and you can't go back. He may still be there. In fact, you're sure that he is. Home is a thousand miles away, or it may as well be. Hope, though, is near. Hope is the last thing that goes. A motorist on the road after midnight. On this road, a good Samaritan to be found on this road to purgatory. You know is not likely. That's why the man had driven you here, because nobody else was going to find you or him. Maybe he's gone now. Maybe it's safe to start going back, back toward town, back toward home, and warmth, and survival. He did let you leave, after all. Only after your many promises and assurances to him that you wouldn't tell a soul. But had he believed you? And now, over the Wyoming wind, beneath the pitch black of the blowing snow, The winter around you is suddenly just a bit clear. And more clear still, there are lights coming up the road from behind you. They're coming from the direction of safety, of home. Someone's here. Someone's found you. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and an advisory before we start this episode that it contains graphic depictions of violence against women. Please listen with care. Coming up on this month's episode, a Casper socialite, a divorcee of a prominent dentist, goes missing. But with this story being set in 1960s Wyoming, also a reminder 
While a great many things have changed in our world since then, others remain terribly the same. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the Cowboy States. It's a hub for experiencing the best the state has to offer. Attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has the best access to one of the best states in the country, and when you're visiting, you'll want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located, serves a free hot breakfast, too. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, and feel the Hamptonality. This is a story of murder, and it's one where the victim is decidedly more interesting than her killer. Grace McManus was a unique individual in the greater landscape of Wyoming. In younger years, she'd been a beauty queen, a finalist for the title of Miss Wyoming, and was very active in informal and formal social circles alike around Casper, and she cut a stunning figure into her 40s. And I wonder if she hadn't perhaps been born in the wrong time zone. She reminds me of Chicago in the 50s and 60s, or perhaps the South in the 20s and 30s, but make no mistake about it, Grace McManus would not have been born anywhere else, were it up to her. She may have never worked a ranch, but she loved horses. She wasn't going to work any 12-hour shifts at the local hospital, but she endeavored tirelessly to raise money for it several times a year. After marrying a prominent dentist in Casper, she'd been a member of the local ladies' association and the country club. Together, Grace and her husband once took home first place in a Mr. and Mrs. golf outing, and Grace was an even better bowler than her husband was. The couple soon had one child, a daughter. This marriage seemed to be a holdover from a vision of the 1950s that was idealized in later years through the lens of Pleasantville and Leave it to Beaver. White picket fences, dinner on the table at six, 2.5 well-behaved children, That America never existed, and after a time, neither did Grace McManus's marriage any longer either. But Grace knew it was for the best, and it took a self-assured woman bordering on fearless to seek any divorce in the 1960s, especially as she turned 40 or so. But Grace simply thought that she'd be better off on her own. And she could have left the cowboy state at that point, and she should have, but she didn't. Casper was where her friends and family were. It's where her daughter had been born and grown up. It's where her friends were, and frankly, it's where people knew Grace. A lot of people. It's difficult to overstate that point. Small town famous in Casper is what Grace McManus was. But not for any power or position that she held, but because she was simply that well-liked. So she embraced her divorce as a chance to reconnect with her side of the family, Grace was aptly named, and she handled the scandalous 1960s divorce with class and with the support of her friends and family. And that support was easy to give from them, really. There wasn't a whole lot for any different kind of person not to like about her. She was kind and caring enough to have been a school teacher, which she was at one time, and outgoing and classy enough to be a prominent socialite in Casper, which she also had become. Not long after her divorce, Grace, her mother, and her own daughter took a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip 
a three-generation, just girls, vacation to Hawaii in the summer of 1965. Here is some context you can use for Grace McManus. When's the last time that something interesting happened on a vacation that you took and the newspaper back home wrote about it? This is what happened to Grace on that trip. The three had been sightseeing on a bus ride around the island, and toward the end of the day, Grace heard what she thought was a car backfiring. It was, instead, a sniper, as described in the society section of the Casper Star Tribune, anyway. And according to their accounts, two other people on the bus had been hit with gunshots. Police scoured the island for the shooter, eventually finding him and arresting him. The man was said to have been a released prisoner who had committed similar acts the year before. The gossip columnist for the paper wrote, quote, One never knows just how close tragedy is to any individual. Yes, indeed. The following spring, 46-year-old Grace McManus disappeared. She'd been last seen Tuesday, March 1st, 1966. A neighbor reported seeing her first at home at about 6 p.m. or 6.30 that night. And upon not hearing from her daughter and attempting to contact her several times, Grace's mother reported her missing the next day. The Natrona County Sheriff's Department launched the initial search in areas they thought might be relevant, around her home, other areas that she frequented. But the search was aimless from the beginning because Grace's car was right where it should have been, in her driveway. Personal possessions described as her luggage were also found inside the home. It appeared that perhaps Grace had been planning to go somewhere, but now she was nowhere to be found. As with any search for a missing person, items were located over the next days and weeks. Whether or not they're relevant to the missing person, though, is another question. So in this case, a woman's glove in remarkably good condition was found off the side of the road near some railroad tracks but Grace's family was not able to definitively identify it as being hers. Police mounted these searches off and on for about two weeks, during which time everyone who knew Grace imagined that they'd hear from her on that day, or the next day, or hear something about her, wherever she was, but that didn't happen. Eventually, police gave up physically looking for Grace and continued their investigation through interviews of family and friends and anyone else who might have seen her on or after the evening of March 1st. And through these interviews, police found another witness who had seen Grace walking east toward East 2nd Street off Montana Avenue at about 11 p.m. on that same night. She'd been wearing slacks and a green and gold coat with a fur collar. What in the world was Grace McManus doing walking through downtown Casper alone at 11 o'clock at night, wearing a fur coat with her car still sitting back at home in her driveway and luggage inside apparently packed for a trip. Something, it seemed, was not quite right with Grace when she walked by herself into a cold and snowy Wyoming night. Grace's family and friends, those she impacted in nearly a half century in living in Wyoming, would need to wait, but weeks, not years, for the answer. Grace had not gone far, and she had not been alone. Dick DeLong was 22 years old and had never met Grace McManus before he found her, 200 feet off Old Ormsby Road. He'd been searching there for Indian artifacts while scouting possible rabbit hunting areas 10 miles from where the missing socialite had been seen three weeks before. 
It was not unusual for Dick DeLong to be in the woods, in the wilderness, a quiet and reserved man, loved being alone in the open country, and he knew it well. And after she went missing, like many in Casper had, Dick DeLong was among those who had volunteered to search for any trace of grace on foot. Those searches, though, had ended, but they quickly emerged in his mind when he noticed from a distance what seemed to be a pile of blackened sagebrush, which upon closer examination were revealed to be the burnt remains of Grace McManus. Most of the body was burned beyond recognition, and DeLong noticed tire tracks leading up and down and away from the area, at which point he knew well enough to leave and call the police. As you have guessed, investigators identified those nude remains as those of Grace McManus, using fingerprints and dental records. The body had clearly been set on fire deliberately, and the areas two or three feet around the body had also been burned. Underneath the body were the clothes that Grace had been wearing on that very night that she'd last been seen March the 1st, and scattered around the area were some of Grace's possessions she would have kept in a purse, and things she would have worn, like the Catholic medallion that she wore every day. There were still plenty of questions to be answered, but on that day in the high desert off Highway 87, what is now Interstate 25, enough was known about Grace McManus's fate to form a picture of what had happened to her, at least initially. And with the location of Grace's body, friends and family were able to lay her to rest, and the rosary service for her life was held at St. Anthony's Church a few days later. But who had done this to Grace remained an open question. For their part, investigators weren't saying much of anything, not even confirming what had become immediately obvious that Grace McManus had met with foul play. Traveling across Wyoming away from the cities and towns, somebody with, admittedly, a darker disposition would wonder how it's possible for anything to ever be found out there. And if Grace had been taken a little further away from the place that she'd spent her entire life until March 1st of 1966, maybe she never would have been found. But as I've already told you, Grace McManus was a good deal more interesting than the person who ended her life. And it was beginning to become rapidly more evident to lawmen tasked with finding and catching this person that they were likely a good deal less clever, too. Because even before her body had been found in the wilderness outside of Casper, the Natrona County Sheriff's Department already knew plenty more about Grace's last night. The new and improved Avalon Club had reopened to the public in 1950 as an upscale-ish bar and ballroom two miles east of Casper on Highway 20. With its live bands, cocktail waitresses, and complimentary hat check, it had quickly become a popular way for Casper's upper middle class to spend their winter nights. Being single after a marriage cannot be easy, certainly not for women, who have been divorced in the 1960s and into their own 40s. Grace was fine with it, though, and she'd frequented places like the Avalon Club recently in an effort to get back in the game or just hang out with her friends. It's not likely that Grace was looking for a second husband in these efforts, at least not overtly. But her social calendar permitted joining other couples that she knew without fear of being ostracized or labeled with any pity. Far from it. With her at the Avalon Club on that last night were friends that she knew. They sat together and enjoyed dinner, music, and dancing. While she did so, Grace almost certainly did not take notice of the very average-looking man in the very average cheap black suit and white shirt as he walked by her table. 
even as he did so several times. When Grace left, so did the man. When the man spotted Grace walking alone on the street, in a position where he thought she would be inclined to accept a ride from him, he offered one. And when the man suggested they go back to the Avalon for a nightcap, she, for whatever reason, agreed to that too. During the course of the following police investigation, checks were gathered by police from everyone who had paid that night at the Avalon Club, and each was questioned individually. One of those questioned, whose cash check was among those of the other patrons of the club that night, was that average man in the average suit, a man named B.J. Dickey, a 39-year-old husband, father of five children, and a manager for the Casper Midcontinent Supply Company. And Dickey had been at the Avalon Club in Casper that night, not just once, but separately twice on March the 1st. Despite this, he denied being at the club at all. And his wife backed up that story. Her husband was out of town on business in North Dakota. That was her understanding, she said. And that was also what B.J. Dickey was telling police as well. And it seems that Mr. Dickey had apparently never stopped to think twice about why police wanted to question him at all. He did not know how police already knew he'd been there, a cash check with his name and signature, proving that he was lying. But this lie, on its own, was not enough to arrest him for any crime having to do with whatever happened to Grace McManus. It was apparent that Mr. Dickey was lying about being at the club, or even in the States, on that same night that Grace disappeared, but there are any number of reasons for the lie, outside of his having any involvement with the crime. Maybe he didn't want his wife to know that he was not, in fact, out of town on business. That wouldn't be the first time. So police developed a clever ruse. A few days after initially talking with B.J. Dickey, they invited him back down to the station for a second interview, to which Dickey seemingly readily agreed. But before they did, investigators contacted the waitress who'd been working at the Avalon Club that night, the waitress who had served Mr. Dickey. They asked her to sit in the hallway at the police station. And when B.J. Dickey walked past her, she identified him as being one of her customers on that night that Grace McManus disappeared. A credible witness, and more importantly, a cashed check, now proved it beyond doubt. B.J. Dickey had indeed been one of the last people to have access to Grace McManus. It was then that Mr. Dickey was walked into the chief of police office, and the chief himself formally read Dickey his rights and offered him a phone book to call a lawyer or anyone else that he chose. Dickey declined to call anyone then, though. He had done nothing wrong, he said. He stuck to his story. And he set about trying to talk his way out of a jam, as it would turn out he had done many times before. The thing to understand about B.J. Dickey is that he sometimes played fast and loose with the abstract truth, to put it mildly. And the thing about homicide investigations is that by their conclusion, there are very often no secrets left. Some of his past transgressions with reality were relatively mild. Most would probably say even excusable and understandable. He was known to have falsified expense reports, for example, claiming to his employer meal charges for client lunches that never happened. Perhaps the most remarkable, if that's the word, maybe the most remarkable aspect of this man is how unflappable he was just then in the police station or Conversely, maybe very, very dense. Grace McManus's remains had been found a few days before police contacted B.J. Dickey. 
And the story, as you would imagine, was front page local news. He would have known by this point that police had found Grace's body. And while he himself had not been publicly named as a suspect by this point, Casper police were stating to the press they expected a big break in the case, without saying what the big break was going to be, and that they'd narrowed in on a man who had been seen with Grace on the night she disappeared. All of these proclamations by police in the newspaper coincided with the first time he was ever contacted by police, but despite all this, Mr. Dickey seemed to have the confidence that nobody else knew what he did, or at least they wouldn't be able to prove it, that he had indeed given Grace McManus a ride at about 11 p.m. on the evening of March 1st, and that she had agreed to return to the Avalon Club with him for a few more drinks. Mr. Dickey did not seem to have imagined it possible that a cocktail waitress from the club would be able to identify him, just as he hadn't recognized the waitress when he passed her again at the police station. And he somehow didn't seem concerned that the personal check that he paid for those drinks with would be traced back to him. Just as everyone always had, to this point anyway, B.J. Dickey assumed that police would believe any old crazy story he decided to tell. And that's what he did. Where had he been on the night of Grace's murder? Not just out of town on business. Mr. Dickey said he had been in Williston, North Dakota, which, by the way, is where his employer and his wife believed him to be. Not only was he not in Casper or even the state of Wyoming on that night, March the 1st into the 2nd, but he had endured a harrowing ordeal himself. He had been kidnapped and held by armed men for a time for ransom. B.J. Dickey told this story to the FBI. And law enforcement never let on about the waitress from the club or the personal check, at least not until they arrested him on April 1st, 1966, which is when Dickey's wife, and sadly his five children as well, also learned far worse things about him than Grace McManus had threatened to reveal in the final moments of her life. B.J. Dickey had done it again. He had walked his way out of trouble, and this time had gotten away with murder for one month. Let's get this over with. That seems to have been the attitude that B.J. Dickey directed onto his legal counsel following his arrest. The arrest had shocked his friends, family, and co-workers. But he wasn't done spinning tales. He did not fight the initial court proceeding. In fact, he sped things along. But he certainly was not going to plead guilty. Billy Joe Dickey wanted to go to trial. And he wanted his chance to sell his wares of what happened that night, or really what didn't happen that night, to a jury. Most everyone knows what a risk it is for a defendant to take the stand in a trial, especially one of such high stakes as a murder trial, but at the end of the day, there is nothing a defense attorney can do to stop their client from testifying in their own defense. And testify, he did. On the stand, B.J. Dickey changed his story. Contrary to what he told the police about an out-of-state kidnapping months before, now the story was that, yes, he had encountered Grace McManus on the road that night. She seemed very grateful and very pleased to have met the tirelessly bland Billy Joe Dickey. And he sensed that the former beauty queen might want much more to do with him than just a ride somewhere. So he drove them to a secluded spot, a known lover's lane, and made advances toward her. Grace was not interested, though. Go figure. And upon expressing her disinterest in him, Dickey testified that Grace threatened him. How would Mrs. Dickey feel about all of this? 
Grace is said to have asked. How would she feel about the fact that her husband seemed fond of picking up women on the side of the road, getting them drunk, and then taking them to lover's lanes? Maybe she'd tell Dickie's wife about this if he didn't let her go. And this, by his own admission, was the very last thing that B.J. Dickey wanted to have happen. His wife could not find out. And so Dickey testified that he grabbed Grace by the wrists, telling her they'd be sitting right there in the car all night until Grace could reassure him that she would not involve his wife in this situation, assuming any of this really happened. But we can only imagine what Grace must have thought then. She would have known that she'd struck a nerve in the man and possibly gained some leverage in the situation. It's fair speculation, then, to assume that perhaps Grace, in her fear and wanting to simply leave the car at all costs, did offer some of these reassurances that this man's wife would not be told. In fact, nobody would be told about what happened between them in the car that night after midnight on the side of the road. She wouldn't tell a soul, she might have said. She just wanted him to let her go. There's no way to know for sure what was said. But Dickey's testimony on the stand continued that Grace did indeed exit the vehicle at that point, into the darkness filled with blowing snow. And that's when he put the car in drive to attempt to catch up to Grace, he said. How could he risk believing her after all? He would seek additional assurances from her and then drop her safely somewhere else. But his vision impaired by the flying snow, he said. He accidentally struck Grace McManus with his vehicle, killing her instantly, he testified. On the stand, he continued the narrative along these lines. He had panicked then. He had scooped up Grace's lifeless body, dragged it around to the back of his car, and put her in the trunk, and then drove aimlessly for some time, unsure of what steps to take next. With her body still in the trunk, he said, Dickie stopped at a gas station to fill a spare tank with three gallons of gasoline. He then drove to a secluded area of the countryside north of Casper, removed Grace from the trunk, doused her with the ignition fluid, and set her on fire. Parts of this account we know are factual. Others are tragically not. The attendant at the gas station told the court that he recalled the defendant visiting the service station on that night. He did fill up that spare tank of gas, he said, but he had asked not for gasoline, but used oil instead. The attendant replied the station didn't have any, which is when Mr. Dickey settled for gas. But the attendant also remembered Grace McManus because she was, according to the attendant, not in the trunk, but in the back seat of the car. The station attendant testified that he saw her there, blood oozing from scratches and abrasions on her face. And further than that, he said he saw her breathing, because Grace McManus wasn't yet dead. Indeed, hair similar to Grace's was found by investigators in the back seat of the car, which seems to bolster the witness version there is little doubt, then, that B.J. Dickey struck Grace McManus with his car on that night. Police also found blood and fibers on the grill of his car, even three weeks after the fact. But the injuries that she sustained call into question whether the attack against her had stopped on the road. Grace's injuries were catastrophic. Both of her collarbones were broken. Her left arm bone was completely fractured below the shoulder. At least 13 ribs were severely fractured with pieces broken off. Both lungs were collapsed, and a femur bone was broken into a number of pieces. 
Such force being caused by a vehicle alone would at least lead to an inference that the accident wasn't one at all. The Grace had been deliberately mowed down, and given her injuries, Grace McManus was not struck by a vehicle at low speed. The trauma to her body would indicate that Grace had been impacted at high speed and then completely run over by at least two of the wheels of Dickie's car. Dickie himself on the stand, probably inadvertently, bolsters that assumption. After he struck Grace with his car, he found her body not in front of his car, but completely behind it. And given the gas station employee's testimony that Grace may well have been alive for some time after all of this, it was not lost on prosecutors that a more likely explanation for the full extent of the victim's injuries in this case was a combination of being struck by a vehicle and then additionally beaten. After all of which, Grace had been set on fire. And so the state further implied, no doubt for the obvious impact it would have on the jury, that Grace McManus may well have been alive right up to that time when she was doused with an accelerant and ignited. The intended inference for the jury to draw here is a powerful one, and prosecutors went so far as to invoke comparisons to the Nuremberg trials following World War II, in which Nazis were tried for mass extermination by fire of Jews and other ethnic minorities in 1940s Germany. Technically speaking, a cause of death in this case was never determined. Because of the damage caused by the fire to the body in the three-week interval during which those burned remains were exposed to the elements, it was not medically possible to definitively determine a cause of death or even when specifically Grace McManus died. Additionally, a knife had been found near Grace's body, opening the door to a third possibility for what actually brought about the end of her life. The county coroner had definitively determined that Grace had been dead prior to her body being set on fire, and we can only hope he was right about that. On September 28, 1966, B.J. Dickey was found guilty of first-degree murder by a jury of seven men and five women. The jury did have the option to find Dickey guilty on lesser charges, including manslaughter, but the decision to convict on the most serious charge possible was unanimous. The state had opted against seeking the death penalty in this case, and Dickey was sentenced to serve between 35 and 55 years at the state prison in Rollins. It was not until Dickey's conviction that Grace McManus's murder received national media attention in the fall of 1966, but only briefly, and soon after, even in Wyoming, Grace was forgotten. Dickey appealed the conviction from prison in 1970, citing numerous legal technicalities, but that appeal was denied. Grace McManus is buried at Highland Cemetery in Natrona County, next to her mother and father. There is nothing on her tombstone, outside of her name and her life states. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. The show is written, researched, and read by me, Scott Fuller, for County10.com. We'd like to thank the return sponsorship of the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, for their support of the show. Please do stop by the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton and stay a night or two the next time you're in the Rendezvous City. You can keep up with the show on Twitter at Wyoming Podcast and support the show for early access to episodes for $10 a month on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. As always, a heartfelt thanks to all of our current Patreon supporters for keeping the show going. 
That's all the time we have for this month, but I've already started work on the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.